0: Welcome to Clap with Jane with Jane Clapp. I know some of the most interesting and inspiring people who are helping to keep humanity afloat in their own unique ways. I want you to meet them too. I wish to acknowledge the land on which I operate. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many Indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited for you to meet Molly Bader Harris, if this is your first acquaintance with her. If it's not, I know, Molly, you do so much work to promote other people's Offerings and work, and I think it's just a real gift for people to be able to hear from you and hear the person who is behind an incredible organization called the Breathe Network. So, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jane. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really um, excited, and as I mentioned, a little bit nervous to be here with you today.
0: I know it's funny being on the other side of things, isn't it? It really
1: is, it's really quite different.
0: You've really made it your mission to to really focus on promoting other people's work in the trauma-informed world. And I remember when I came across the Breathe Network, um, gosh, I guess almost seven years ago, Mm -hmm. I felt this sigh of relief come into my body. When I realized that I could become a part of an organization that shared similar values and bringing more trauma-informed care outside of just psychotherapeutic care. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think it would be really great for people to hear, like, what is the Breathe Network?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. It seems like such a simple question, and then it opens up so many different layers for me. Um, you know, first and foremost, we're we're really trying to center healing within the larger movement um, to end sexual violence. So I come to the work as a survivor of sexual assault myself. Um, I spent about a decade working in the advocacy movement as a medical advocate and a legal advocate and um, had the experience as both a survivor and as a, a volunteer and as a professional that actual healing support was considered peripheral to the goals of the movement. So, um, you know, we, we have a lot of like triage response services when people are in acute places of crisis. There was a lot of attention to criminal justice systems that we know don't serve the majority of survivors. And then there was this failure to recognize that healing doesn't happen um, in a six week support group that you, you know, I mean, it's part of your healing, of course, but that most of us are kind of handling and working through the impacts of sexual trauma for years and decades, if not across the lifespan. So, um, so that was what was really, um, I guess, important to me to, to name and to, put my energy behind within the work. And, and, you know, I myself experienced so much vicarious trauma or re wounding or re triggering through doing the work. And so um, I felt like if I wanted to stay in the movement, which I did, I had to find a way to do it. That didn't cause me harm. And so centering healing was something that just was like, so nourishing to my spirit. And, um, and I feel like the tearfulness cause it's just, it's, it's true. It's like, I, by being part of that collective, like this belonging to a group of healers who have had their own experiences, sexual trauma or other forms of trauma. Um, it really, it's been like a beacon for me, you know, that I can, um, that I too can keep showing up for the work that I can show up for my own healing process, that there is something beyond surviving sexual trauma. And, um, And I get glimpses of that through my work and in my personal life. So, um, but, you know, for, in terms of like the tangible work of the Breathe Network, um, we are set up to connect sexual trauma survivors with trauma-informed sliding scale health and healing professionals. So um, it's a, it's a broad mission in the sense that the demand for services and support is so high um, that so many survivors are drawn to all of these different healing practices that we offer, but but um, the attention and focus on sexual assault and trauma-informed care isn't yet infused within most of our health and healing spaces. Um, you can get a master's in counseling and, and have never talked about sexual assault and not learn about trauma and trauma-informed care or have done your own healing work. So... Um, there's this like real incongruence for what survivors are seeking and then what's actually available. So to kind of help um, address that we've developed a lot of trainings and education programs for health and healing professionals that are really interdisciplinary um, so that we're casting the widest net because we think that healing comes from being able to take a trauma-informed yoga class, go to psychotherapy, but also to get your annual like medical exam. That's part of your healing too. Um, and your health and your overall, you know, wellness. So um, we also cast that wide net in our trainings because I think that we all have so much to learn from each other. You know, like my background is yoga and somatic experiencing, and I learned so much from body workers and I learned so much from psychotherapists and I learned from naturopaths. So I think that um, there's always ways that we can really translate the knowledge from other healing practices to better inform What we do in our work, but also to know what are the other resources and complementary supports we can um, offer to survivors.
0: Well, that was very complete. So uh, I just want to mention what high integrity you have in terms of what people you invite into being a part of your organization, being listed as a trauma informed um, practitioner. I just filled out a um, reference for somebody. And it was like a full page of questions that required a lot of thought and care. And I remember six years ago when over seven years ago, when I applied to become a member, there was this back then before people were talking about trauma-informed practitioners, there was this really clear intention to be very careful about who would be called the trauma-informed practitioner. And I just, I really wanna acknowledge that because I think trauma-informed practitioner of any sort has lost its meaning in a lot of um, circles and spaces. But from the very beginning, you were pretty stringent about what, who you felt would be the safest practitioner for people to, to have access to and for you to kind of recommend on on your site, on your website?
1: Yeah, um, we, we have been pretty stringent because that's such a huge responsibility. You know, we set out with this, you know, mission that when you come to our website, you will find folks who have the training and the capacity and skills to support you in a trauma-informed way. And so um that that application process i think while i it can be a barrier to some people applying because it is pretty lengthy you know if you're the applicant it's about 10 questions and and then you have the three references um and so it's you know i i think it has slowed our growth to some extent because it's not just something you fill out online and you're done and yet Creates this really robust collective of folks who are demonstrating from the onset a really clear um, commitment and dedication and interest in supporting trauma survivors in this way.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I was thinking we were in New York together about six years ago and I was, I freaked out when you invited me to come to New York to be part of this day long <laughs> workshop. I was just like, wow, it, it was such a honor and it was such a pivotal point in my work to be, to be recognized that way. And I reflect back, that was almost six years ago. Mm-hmm. So much has changed now. Now, what would you, if you could summarize, like, from when you started the Breathe Network to now, how would you say the climate around trauma-informed practitioners has shifted? Like, it's, it's, it's night and day in some ways, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a whole podcast, right, in and of <laughs> itself for a book.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but, you know, I think... It's become sort of ubiquitous to say that you're a trauma-informed professional. Um, so I think you know I think there's there's some challenges to how trauma-informed care is being handled and then some amazing opportunities of course. Um, one of the things that I think you know within my kind of field specifically of trauma-informed yoga, that I don't know if we were clear enough about as like a community, um, even though we're not, there isn't really a clear body of trauma-informed yoga teachers. I don't think at this point, but um, Mm -hmm. I don't think we were clear enough that you, that a 20 hour weekend workshop or um, any kind of weekend workshop or a three hour course takes you from not being trauma-informed to suddenly being a trauma-informed provider, where you can intentionally reach out to folks who are seeking yoga as specific modality to work with their trauma. Mm -hmm. I think it's um, one thing to hold a more trauma-informed space as a yoga teacher. And I'm really interested in that because I think that's where most folks show up is in like a public yoga class. They're not necessarily um, starting by seeking out a trauma-informed space. So I think we are gonna reach more trauma survivors if, you know, the majority of our teachers are kind of taking up some of this information and adapting their classes to be more inclusive to folks who have trauma histories, which is most of us. Um, and and yet, you know, I, I would learn, you know, um, anecdotally from folks who might have gone through one of my trainings, which are often like a weekend training that then they started working one-on-one with people And they started um, just kind of making things up with folks that were in like a really acute place with their trauma that needed pretty intensive care and then actually exacerbating or re-traumatizing their clients. So I'm also clear that like we can learn all of the things we can learn about trauma and we can study for decades and we may cause harm in the work that we do with clients. and that we can't inoculate spaces against triggers. But I think that, you know, specifically with trauma-informed yoga, there isn't one working definition yet of what that really is. And I think that's confusing for yoga teachers who are kind of looking out at the sea of options and trying to figure out where they land. Um, So, you know, and then much of the teaching and the conversation has been led by white people. Um, often by white men. So the good news there is that more and more um, BIPOC yoga teachers are are designing their own courses and are bringing you know weaving in systemic oppression, which was um, left out for so long in, in a lot of trauma informed yoga trainings. So um, I think the opportunity, and I think this opportunity is quite specific to COVID is that we no longer are going to, we can no longer point like over there. And I'm actually pointing with my arm to say Mm. like, those people over there have dysregulated nervous systems or are reactive because of these overwhelming situations they've experienced or environments they've experienced and kind of other that population of people is having specific or high demand needs in healing spaces, I think it's like there's been this real um, humbling experience for all of us to realize it's just inherent within our humanity that we're impacted by things and that it's going to show up in our bodies or in our psyches, in our relationships. And so I feel like there has been a door that's been opened um, through this horrific pandemic that has really um, caused all of us to to realize, like this information about trauma, or just information about our own physiology, our own nervous systems, should not just be reserved for folks who have like acute or overt trauma histories. This is like knowledge that we all need because we're all navigating life, and um, so I think that there's an opportunity there to start to see like um, there's a place in this conversation around trauma, trauma-informed care, healing, and resilience for any health and healing provider. And probably more important in anything than anything is that providers are probably having some pretty um, also humbling encounters with their own histories right now or their own ways of handling stress or overwhelm. And um, for me, I feel like that's pretty foundational um, working with our own our own experience to the ways in which we're actually able to show up for other people. So I don't know if that really answered the question, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there's opportunities and and there's challenges at the same time. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Yeah. I, and I know, I mean, you, you are a yoga teacher and you're a somatic, somatic, somatic experiencing practitioner. Um, So I know that your yoga practice and teaching is deeply informed um, from your training in somatic experiencing, how would you say that as somatic experiencing really changed the way you offered yoga to people?
1: Yeah. Wow. (laughs) It's changed it in, um, a number of ways. Um, and then of course it's also, it's reinforced some things that I felt to be true in my own experience as a trauma survivor, engaging with yoga, Um, that was incongruent with what I was learning would be healing to me in yoga. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think we still, there is still a tendency within the conversations around trauma-informed yoga to be somewhat prescriptive. Um, I think the sort of, the lack of nuance is that trainings are often such condensed experiences for people. And so you're sort of overloading them, with as much information as possible, and then hoping that they can go and apply it in a meaningful way. And yet, you know, um, you might talk about the autonomic nervous system for a couple of hours, when again, you know, I think you could spend years and years and years, or a lifetime really studying the intricacies of that system. And, um, and so, so for me, I think that, one of the ways that SE was really helpful was understanding, you know, it sounds so simple, but not all bodies are impacted the same way by trauma. Mm -hmm. And, and yet when you look at some of the more, what I might even call mainstream trauma-informed yoga practices, it tends to look like all bodies might need the same thing to heal their trauma. And I mean that because what I often see is, um, a preference for very, very slow movement. I see um, a preference for um, not really engaging in meditation, not engaging in um, uh, maybe breathing practices. Um, I see preferences around avoiding certain areas of the body. Like there's this, um, and I've heard you use this word, this like carefulness in these spaces. And it's not that we don't wanna be careful and thoughtful. Um, but I think one of the things that SE opened up for me was we can't make generalizations about where and how bodies hold trauma. Um, and specifically, you know, I, my background is so focused on sexual trauma and the areas that you often hear you might want to avoid or the places where there's going to be trigger would be like the pelvis, hips, abdomen, glutes area. And um, And I think what SE really opened up for me and it opened it in my own body. And then working with other people, of course, is these highly charged moments within the like larger arc of a trauma event or story that happen even before um, the sexual trauma occurred. So that like it, you know, kind of like um, we want to do with trauma and the way we work with it. We're stretching out time. I think SE really helped me to stretch out my own timeline enough to see that where I held the most charge um, actually was prior to like my, my the my body being breached by another human, mm. and so um, and so that was like a real awakening for me of of thinking about, you know, we sort of overprotect certain areas of the body when we talk about trauma-informed area, and then we neglect to think about these other areas that are really specific to the survivor's unique story of of trauma. Um, I think also there can be this overemphasis on um, trying to help people let me back up on a restate that I think there's a lack of emphasis on the body as a, as a resource for pleasure and joy and, um, goodness when it comes to how we engage with yoga as trauma survivors. I think, um, my experience of the practices have been a lot about like it's trauma-informed yoga just helps us to handle or process trauma. But for me, it's been, yes, Yoga has been a part of my trauma healing, but I don't stay with the yoga practice um, just to like do trauma healing work. I stay with it because it's part of my healing is about feeling strength in my body or feeling really connected to my breath or like the pleasure of opening a big muscle group or just moving in rhythm. Um, so I feel that's something I think that's really important to see is helping people orient towards pleasure and ease and comfort as being like foundational to your capacity to actually hold the enormity of like the pain and the suffering and the grief or the anger rage whatever it might be so um i don't know it's it's such a big it's a big topic like SE really does inform how i teach and um and then it keeps me really humble too because i think like with SE they're the way that I've learned it, you know, and there's different teachers, right? So we could all go to one SE practitioner, learn, you know, you learn from your teacher. And so you hold a little bit of their framework or their lineage. Who did they learn from? And so I feel lucky that I learned from somebody who really like centers the client as like, that's kind of our primary teacher. And so we might have to set aside everything we've known and everything that's worked and figure out with them like what will work with them. And so that's been really, um, I've gained a lot of comfort in that. Like I think at first it can be a little scary to not know and to feel like I don't know if this these this process will work with this person or how these poses will go or if I have the right tools. Um, but then it's also kind of liberating to really trust like I trust that we can do this work together and we'll figure it out. So. Um, that's where Essie's been so helpful in how, how I teach.
0: Mm, I love that. And that really answers kind of my next question too, um, which is like, if you could share two or three pieces of advice for yoga teachers or other practi- practitioners um, working with uh, trauma survivors who have experienced sexual violence, like you've kind of covered it. You've said, focus on the client as your guide and your teacher. It reminds me a lot of the idea that we can do all the training and preparation and learning we want, but ultimately you have to leave that to the side and focus Mm -hmm. on the person in front of you. And, Mm -hmm. And so it's so important to learn and train and educate yourself, but that we're not working with structured systems that negate individual experiences and lived experiences, right? Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I think there was um, I heard someone in a in a lecture once say, you know, um the client can trust you when they get a sense that you trust yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that kind of points back to um, you know, we've had this like hierarchy in Western healing practices, um, that, you know, there's a healer and then there's the person seeking healing and they're two different people. And um, that once you get a certain amount of degrees or trainings, or now you're a trauma teacher that you don't actually need to keep doing your own healing work. And I think that, um, that this last year, you know, I think all of my SE training helped me really reinforce, like, I got to keep attending to my own work. But this last year with COVID um, has really unearthed some new, some new layers of, of how I can go back in to kind of bolster my own foundation and then how that gives me more like steadiness and just, I feel more capable as a practitioner with other people navigating really difficult experiences.
0: Yeah, like that, you had a quote the other day, um, healing is sometimes holding and it is sometimes being held. And when it's both at the same time, to call it healing feels too small. You said that. (laughs) yeah that's beautiful thank you
1: yeah I'm tearful I'm tearful about it um because it's really through because it's a picture of me and my daughter mm. right where I shared that and um and I'm holding her and I'm nursing her you can't really tell because of course I want to I'm we have to present the right thing for for social media Um, and, um, but I know that, right. I know that in that picture, that's what's happening and, and we hold each other, you know, it's like, i hold her kind of wrap my body around her, but she wraps herself into me and puts an arm across me as well. And, um, yeah, I think there's these, these moments and this has happened with clients, you know, and, you know, folks that I work with and it's not always, and they're just like these little like um points in time where there's this really um strong interconnectedness that feels kind of timeless and it feels like you're in your own universe with this person and um and like with my child you know there's been so many ways in which she's been such a healer to me you know help, helping me with just by being herself. She doesn't even have to try. Um, Just helping me really navigate some of the uh, imprints of lack of nurturance and lack of physical touch from my infancy and childhood and how um, like how restorative it is to be able to give that to her, even though it wasn't given to me. And then just amazing, I think as a trauma survivor myself to know there could be these things that are missing from my history that the whole world is telling me are like vital to me being like a, an, a together adult human. And yet I still have ways to access them and cultivate them. And like, they're, they're still kind of ingrained in me because I'm a human. So, um, you know, like I didn't learn about, Nurturance and attachment from my own parents. I just learned it from becoming a parent, and my child kind of helped lead lead that. Um, So, yeah, there's something about that, like this the mutuality or the reciprocity between me and my child in that moment, or myself and a client at times, where I feel like what's happening is so much bigger than. Um, what I can even give words to and that like a part of me is being really touched by what I'm witnessing. And, you know, and I'm not just witnessing like, you know, with SE and with a lot of other healing practices, we're really clear, like we're part of it. Like it's, there's our, our bodies are working together. Our nervous systems are working together to create these spaces. And so um, Yeah, the the word healing is like it's more like something transcendent that I I don't think I have the words for yet.
0: For me, I think of I mean one thing that kind of gets under and annoys me is when people talk about nervous systems and we're talking about wiring, right? Mm -hmm. But what we're what you're actually talking about is something much deeper than our wiring. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're two nervous systems coming together, but. There's a numinous experience and opening into something much bigger than the two people in the room when your heart's in it right yeah. i think I think um therapists, practitioners are afraid to talk about love mm-hmm. and i'm not t- I'm talking about the kind of love and care that you have that's healthy and boundaried, but it's in the room, and I don't yeah. think you can do really good work without your heart being fully present and online. And it goes beyond the, the kind of the physical body and my experience where there's something in the field between people that is huge. If you'd like to contribute to the show, please visit my Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. 10% of your proceeds goes to Doctors Without Borders. And 10% goes to a different organization every month fighting racism and systemic oppression. Thank you so much for your help and your contributions. You know, I have a daughter. She's 17. She did this incredible film that was so brave in naming all the ways that media just makes sexual assaults and sexual violence okay to sell things, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: and. Her fierceness, her clarity her the ways that she grew up it's it's like that embrace to me mm-hmm. that you talk about with your three year old It's like this two way like I wish I had been so clear and so fierce when I was your age because you know, I worked with sexual assault survivors for years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've taught about trauma, and you know um the courage of seeing like a young person like my daughter be so clear all the courage I've taken in from my clients who have named their own sexual violence it still took me until about just over a year ago to be able to come to terms with the fact that I had experienced sexual violence about 20 years ago Mm -hmm. you know and I think it's something that i can only uh, thank all the courage of like the people i've interact with interacted with to help me be able to handle coming to terms with that and to see my experience through a different lens so we're always affected by our clients and if we aren't then our hearts aren't in it
1: yeah yeah and and it's interesting too because i think that if we're not being affected there's some there's some like Buffer we're putting up. Um, I don't know if it's helpful to the client when we have that kind of a buffer. And I feel like we're asking ourselves to override our own experience. And so, you know, I think about that in my work with people, but also just in like public speaking that I do, of like, I refuse to override what's coming up right now because that's what this culture has asked of me my whole life is to like shut that feeling down or it's just not been safe enough. But when I find safe spaces like a podcast (laughs) or if someone's like paying me to be a keynote speaker and I have a little bit of permission to just be myself, I'm being paid to be myself. Like I'm going to pause and like feel what I feel and I'm not going to shut it down because like that is so reinforcing what we had to do to get through trauma and I am not going to like keep teaching my body that it's not okay to be in my body. So, um, yeah. And I just appreciate you sharing that about it, taking the time that it took for you to like make contact with that part of your history. Um, I think that's true for more folks than not. Actually. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I I have been sexually assaulted multiple times and it wasn't until I was raped by a stranger that I then realized what were all of those things that happened before, mm. you know, it was like, cause I was raised in this culture that like, if you know them, if you love them, if you went out with them, if you drank with them, if you fooled around with them, whatever happened, that's not rape. That's not sexual violence. That's, that's, you know, something else. Um, Or if it wasn't to this degree, then it's not that bad. And so I thought that that was, that for me was really like powerful and painful to be like handling the rape and the processing of that and then start to put all the pieces together. But it was really like significant as well to think how much I didn't even know my own experience because of cultural conditioning, because I was never taught. Like I had a right to my own body.
0: Oh, yeah. I just was, I just want to, I just got goosebumps and felt like this nausea of like, it makes me sick.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You know, and it, and the trigger, like when we, when we can wake up so much of it does have to do with our culture. And when I see someone who has been really brave, like there was a case that really, was describing my experience this person found the strength and support to report these people in a system where how many people actually get charged with sexual assault when they're right. reported and she went through with it and they were convicted there was this like because that's so rare like, yeah. it's so rare yeah yeah and then, and and it was a bar right across from my old studio wow, where it had happened. And my whole body was just like, oh my God. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think with practitioners, like if you, I think you almost, if you want to call yourself trauma informed, you have to be really prepared to deal with sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Like that is such a huge part of it. And the way it infiltrates your psyche and your sense of self and your questioning of reality. Right. And how difficult that can be for, for people. And I'm just so thankful that you've led the way, you know, you've been such a leader in this field before people were really, really talking about trauma informed work, you know, and, and you're leading the way now. I mean, there's a quote from, your Instagram page again, I believe I've humbly realized that efforts to deliver healing care that lack historical, social and cultural context remain insufficient. At at worst, decontextualized healing theories, practices and practitioners may exacerbate harm. And I know that at the Breathe Network, you've been really take really attending to this and the way that you're offering trauma-informed trainings and the the people that you are really focusing on and promoting their work. Do you have anything mm-hmm. more you want to say about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I want to say in terms of like my um capacity to show up as a leader, um, doors were open to me because of all of the different privileges that I that I hold, you know, like I was able to um, survive rape and and be very quickly connected to a private yoga instructor and an acupuncturist and an EMDR practitioner, <laughs> a psychotherapist and a body worker. Like I had my own personal breed network, you know, within months of um, surviving. and most people don't. And so I think that um, the reason I had that access had so much to do with financial resources um, and, um, and the fact that I, as a white person, um, as someone who's cisgender, as someone who's heterosexual, like I could find access to healing spaces where my identity was reflected and affirmed. And so I didn't go into a healing space and then come up against homophobia or micro, different kinds of microaggressions. Like I felt like I could show up and we could focus on the trauma of sexual assault. And there weren't all these other traumas and layers that I had to unpack. So I th- think it's important to say that because um, because there's other folks who... Um, could have and would be leading in in the same way had they had that same that same access to healing and then um and then the capacity i have a partner so they are able to help us pay our rent and to pay our health insurance and make it so that i can follow my dream of trying to build up a, a nonprofit from from scratch which takes some time and again if you don't have like an additional income or your parents who donate to your annual fundraiser every year, um, then it, then it's really hard. But to go back to this, um, to that quote, you know, as the, as the founder of the Breathe Network and as a white person, I think I came to it thinking sexual trauma survivors just need access to healing that is trauma informed, that is holistic and that is sliding scale. And I really fail to recognize they need healers who also like reflect them and their fullness and the layers of trauma and oppression and harm that they've experienced outside of the specific harm of sexual assault. Because I was naive, I was ignorant. And um, and so part of what we've been really working with for a couple of years because it's not overnight, even though I wish that it could be, um, it's important that it's not overnight, that we've been really examining our our personnel. So like our board and our staff and starting to make strategic changes and um, choices around how we can center BIPOC leaders on our board and within our staff, Um, within our board, um, we, we're actually actively um, seeking new members right now, and within the application, we're really explicitly naming that we will be centering racial justice and racial trauma as well as other system, systemic forms of oppression within the work of healing sexual trauma and um, along with res- centering restorative justice practices and frameworks within our organization. And that's those two pieces um, I think are going to bring folks on who have that expertise and that lived experience as BIPOC professionals and healers. Um, And then it also creates with the restorative justice framework that we're building. And I think it'll be, this is like a big endeavor for this year. Um, While that came out of um, allegations of harm from somebody who was affiliated with our network, sexual harm um, a restorative justice framework, the one that we're building, um, will actually hold the organization to handle other forms of harm as well um, that may that may arise. And so that helps us as an organization, I think, be accountable to each other, to survivors, to members. Um, you know, we've looked at our membership and we're, right now we've built a new program that we hope is just an ongoing program where BIPOC Practitioners will not pay to join the Breathe Network, and they will not pay the annual fees when they join um, each year. Um, we are allocating significant resources so that any BIPOC practitioner or survivor that wants to take our course will have either full or partial scholarships to support that. Um, and thinking about our programming too, like what how what do our courses center? What have they historically centered? how can we reflect a commitment to anti-oppression by through our curriculum, through our faculty, through the way that we deliver the materials. Um, So there's like a lot of layers to how we um, become a more anti-oppression oriented organization. And and it's not overnight and we are moving in all these different um, places, but, um, but we're really, we're really committed to it. And, um, and it allows us to really fulfill our mission, which is to ensure that all survivors of sexual trauma have access to trauma-informed healers. Thank you
0: for that. I hear, I hear the work you're doing, and knowing you as a human being, I know, I know the high integrity you bring to everything you do. Thank you. Um, just wrapping up, is there anything you want people to know that you're currently offering and, and how they can find out more about your work, about the Breathe Network and about your work?
1: Um, folks can find out more by, you know, going to our website, thebreednetwork.org. Um, they can reach me on email, molly at thebreednetwork.org. They can find us on social media and connect with me there. And we we have a couple um, courses that we're relaunching. Um, you've been a part of two of them: the Healing Sexual Trauma, which is for providers, and then Embodied Healing Trauma-Informed Yoga and Meditation, which is for survivors. And those will launch again in April, and they'll just be available now on demand. Mm-hmm. So through a new um, format, so when folks are ready and interested, they can access the materials. Um, But we're building a new course for the fall, a certificate course um, that's 30 hours and is far more comprehensive and I would say um, is equally holding systemic oppression and the individual experience of sexual trauma side by side within the learning. So um, that's something to kind of stay tuned about. And... um, Yeah. I just, I guess I, it's hard for me to not just mention like this. I was thinking about this Adrian rich quote recently. And I feel like anytime I have a chance to connect with practitioners, they need to hear it or we need to talk about it, but there's some, some quote where, you know, like she says something and I'm not going to remember it verbatim where there have to be like those people where we can go and, and weep and still be counted as warriors, something like that. Right. And I'm Mm -hmm. sort of tender hearing it, but I think it's so important for healing professionals right now to know like you can do this work and you're still like worthy of accessing your own healing and and nothing you know matters more right now than really bringing your attention back to um how you can keep furthering and supporting your your healing process so
0: mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Molly, your heart and soul is in everything you do and I'm just so honored to know you and to stay connected with you, and and I'm just in awe of how much um, you commit yourself to, and, and again, the integrity you bring to everything you do.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Jane, for having me and sharing the space. I really appreciate it.